Well, now I turn to our lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue making our way through 1 Corinthians 15. We come to verses 29 through 34. In this, in these verses, the Apostle Paul speaks of some inconsistencies in the logic of those who reject the doctrine of resurrection and yet claim that they are Christians. And so we see here in these verses the necessity of believing in resurrection. As we read here in verses one, verses 29 through 34 of 1 Corinthians 15, this is God's infallible word as given to the Apostle Paul, who wrote this by inspiration of the Spirit. So let's attend again with reverence to the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness. And do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us this time. May we pray. Lord, we do indeed pray that now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, that not only the reading and the exposition, but the hearing of your word would be blessed by you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after discussing several results of Christ's resurrection, including that it guarantees the bodily resurrection of all who believe in Christ, all who have saving faith, and that Christ reigns now, and that death itself will be destroyed in the end, After talking about those things, Paul returns briefly to the problem of those who deny the reality of bodily resurrection. He concludes that it is necessary to believe in resurrection to be a Christian. Resurrection is an essential tenet of Christianity. Saying that I'm a Christian without believing in resurrection would be like saying I'm a chef when I never cook. Right? Um, It doesn't make sense. The two things go hand in hand. To deny real physical resurrection is to lack, Paul says, necessary knowledge of God. And in pointing out the necessity of resurrection, the apostle exposes several logical fallacies, several mistakes or inconsistencies in the thinking of those who would deny the reality of bodily resurrection, while at the same time 
claiming that they're Christians. It's not surprising that unbelievers might deny the reality of resurrection. But it is shocking that someone would say, I don't believe in resurrection, and yet I am in covenant with Christ. Yet I am a Christian. And Paul says this doesn't make sense. For one thing, he shows the behavior of the resurrection deniers demonstrates that they lack understanding. They're doing things that make sense only if resurrection is real, and yet they're claiming that resurrection isn't real. Number two, the apostle the apostles themselves would be unnecessarily and therefore foolishly undergoing hardship. Remember, as he said before, if, if our hope in Christ is only in this life, then we are of all men the most pitiable, the most miserable. If the joys and the good things we get from the Lord have no promise for a life to come, and remember he established before that if there's no resurrection, it doesn't mean that we'll just die and go in spirit to heaven and be fine because if there's no resurrection, Jesus didn't rise from the dead and that means Jesus isn't God's holy one and therefore your sins aren't paid for, meaning when you die, the only place your spirit's going is hell. Why would the apostles be risking life and comfort and all kinds of things in this life when that's all they have to look forward to? It would be foolish. Third, there would be no point in living righteously. Again, why seek to be obedient to God if the only thing that's coming for you, whether you're obedient or not, is hell? And then fourth, those who teach against resurrection are not a good, therefore, but an evil influence on the church. There needs to be church discipline, in other words. So the main point, though, is in this passage, that resurrection, real bodily resurrection, is an essential tenet of Christianity. As we've talked about before, saving faith involves three elements. Uh, Knowing what you are to believe. The theological term, the Latin term is notitia there. It just means knowing what you're to believe, knowledge. Then there's a census, agreeing that it's true, and then trusting in Jesus Because it's true. Those are three elements of saving faith. A necessary part of that then is the first step. It's knowledge. You have to know what you're to believe in order to agree that it's true and trust in Jesus Christ. And part of that knowledge is a real belief in real bodily resurrection. A person does not have necessary saving knowledge of God, Paul says here, if he or she denies the reality of resurrection. That's Paul's conclusion to this passage in verse 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Notice Paul equates this lack of knowledge here not just with being ignorant of something that's okay to not know or know. Uh, Here he equates not knowing this with sin. Awake and do not sin, you're lacking knowledge. To teach falsehood about God is sinful. In fact, denying the reality of resurrection is basically to call God a liar and to call all the apostles liars as they speak about God, that he raised Jesus from the dead, as Paul said before. It's shameful also, then, that the Corinthian church has tolerated this and not done something about it yet. 
They've let resurrection deniers in their midst go uncorrected and undisciplined. Even as it was to their shame that they had not disciplined sexually immoral members of the congregation back in chapter 5. Remember chapter 5 verse 6, your glory, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here in verse 33 he says essentially the same thing. Saying of the time, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. People in the congregation who are believing and teaching things contrary to the gospel need to be disciplined, Paul says. If they refuse to be corrected, they need to be cast out. Chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And, and chapter 5, verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, stick a pin in that, we're going to come back to it momentarily, a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. A resurrection denier would fit the definition of a reviler that Paul talks about there. Someone who looks with contempt on the things that God has revealed. How could you people be so stupid as to believe that people actually rise from the dead? That's a reviler. It's necessary to believe in resurrection to be a Christian. In coming to that conclusion, Paul points out several logical fallacies of those who would claim to be Christian on the one hand while denying on the other hand the reality of resurrection. These are clear mistakes, falsehoods, inconsistencies in their thinking and in their teaching and practices. The first thing he points out is the behavior of the resurrection deniers demonstrates that they actually lack understanding even of what they're claiming to believe and especially of the Christian faith that they claim to hold on to. Some of their practices make no sense if they actually do not believe in resurrection. Verse 29, the first verse we read today, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Now this is one of the most obscure and difficult verses in Scripture. If you want to know what it really means, ask the Lord when you get to heaven. Um, (laughs) We have some good ideas, but it's very unclear, and nobody knows for sure. What is Paul talking about here? No doubt the Corinthians would have understood it because they were in the context Paul was talking about. They knew what he was referring to. But future generations of Christians, and very early on, we can see this in the writings of the ancient church fathers, were really confused. We're not entirely sure what Paul's talking about here. They lacked the context for the clear interpretation. But there's something going on at Corinth that Paul refers to here as being baptized for the dead. I'll give you some options for how to understand verse 29. Uh, Though we cannot be certain of any of these, uh, what it's saying, uh, we can, although, be certain of some things that Paul is clearly not saying. 
because uh, these would be things that would contradict Scripture elsewhere. There have been some interpretations of verse 29 that clearly contradict the plain teaching of Scripture in other places. And a good rule for scriptural hermeneutics, for understanding what the Bible is telling you, is you let the clear and plain scriptures interpret the obscure scriptures and not the other way around. Right? So there are some things that are obscure, and if we're not sure what they're saying, we can be sure that what they're saying is not going to contradict another scripture. Right? The most egregious of all of these bad interpretations is the belief in vicarious baptism, that this is what Paul is teaching here, that people get baptized in a way that's standing in for other people who had died without being baptized. You know, someone dies unbaptized, and a Christian later gets baptized in that person's behalf, somehow conferring supposedly the covenant benefits of baptism onto that dead person. Well, for one thing, that would be to treat baptism like magic, uh, being baptized doesn't save anyone, right? Christ saves. Baptism is the practice of people who are saved by Christ. It's an act of obedience. It's a sign of the entrance of believers and their children into the covenant community. It is, as Paul says in Colossians 2, what circumcision was for the old covenant. It is for the new covenant. But on the other hand, a dead person who was never baptized is beyond its need or its help. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. The unbeliever who dies is confirmed in his or her sins with no further hope. The believer who dies goes immediately to be with the Lord in spirit, even if for some reason he was not baptized before he died. He would be like the thief on the cross next to Jesus to whom the Lord said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's because salvation depends on Jesus, not on baptism. Baptism is an appropriate act for the saved community, for the covenant community, but no work on earth saves us. Obedient Christians will get baptized and they'll baptize their children, but if something prevents it or Lack of baptism is not going to prevent salvation. We can also put to the other side of the coin. Merely being baptized is not going to save you either. You have to actually have genuine faith yourself. And once dead, no one can be saved if they're not saved already. Some, like the 4th century church fathers, John Chrysostom and Ambrose of Milan, have thought that Maybe what was going on here was that some people in Corinth were erroneously thinking that that could happen, that you could be baptized on someone else's behalf when they had already died. They thought that maybe Paul mentions the practice not to endorse it, but to show how foolish it is because the resurrection deniers are doing it, and it makes no sense that they're doing it but he's not intending to endorse the practice. Remember, as we saw before, if if resurrection is not real, Jesus is not risen. As I mentioned already, if Jesus is not risen, then not only can we not hope to rise from the dead, we can't expect to go to heaven in any way at all, not even in spirit. If Jesus did not rise, he's not the Holy One of God. If he's not the Holy One of God, he can't pay for anyone else's sins. He's not our Savior. 
As Paul said in verses 16 and 17, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If we die still in our sins, there's only one place we're going. However, as John Calvin points out, in chapter 11, Paul made sure not to let abuse of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper go uncorrected and unchallenged. If Chrysostom and Ambrose of Milan are correct, then we'd have to ask, why would Paul let this go unchallenged if people are abusing the sacrament of baptism? Why, are, why is he letting it go unchallenged in chapter 15? That doesn't seem consistent. Now, the Corinthians were not getting baptized vicariously on behalf of dead people, and Paul certainly is not endorsing such a practice. It was only later heretics, like some of the Gnostics, uh, Marcion, for example, uh, and modern-day Mormons, who had practiced vicarious baptism for the dead. But another interpretation is that some Christians were getting baptized over the graves of dead Christians. This is a possibility with the Greek text. Uh, the, the preposition translated for, as people getting translated or getting baptized for the dead, can be also translated on behalf of the dead, but it can also mean over or on top of. It's huper in the Greek. Uh, Think of when somebody has hypertension. You have high blood pressure. Your blood pressure is over what it should be. If you have, if you're a kid who's hyperactive, right? You're saying he's overactive, right? So it may be that Paul is saying, why are you getting baptized over the graves of the dead? Over the dead. It's possible that some were getting baptized at the grave sites of dead believers as a sort of testimony to their belief that those believers will rise again. Well, if a resurrection denier is doing that, that's silly. If you don't believe they'll rise again, why are you doing that? Why are you getting baptized over their graves thinking they'll rise, as if they will rise again? That would be kind of stupid if you also denied the reality of resurrection. And yet some resurrection deniers were doing whatever this practice was. And if that's the interpretation that the right interpretation that they were going to the graves of the dead and getting baptized there. Why do it if the dead are just dead and never going to rise again? Related to that possibility is the option that some might have become believers after the passing of a Christian loved one. They might, in some sense, have dedicated their baptism to the dead loved one. A dead loved one who, if resurrection is not real will not rise again, and as Paul says, it was died still in their sins and so is now burning in hell. What do they care about baptism? <clears throat> what good did their baptism do them? None whatsoever. Another view is that in verse 29, Paul is using baptism as a metaphor for death itself. This is a bit of a stretch, I think. I don't think it's the best interpretation. But in Luke 12, 50, Jesus asks, James and John, if they can be baptized with the baptism like his. And in context, he's not talking about water baptism, he's talking about his suffering and death. In that case, if that's what Paul means here, there's no indication, I think, from the context that Paul would be saying that, but in that case we would need to, to read verse 29 as asking, uh, what do they do who are baptized by experiencing death? What do we think about believers who died, in other words? Well, they have no hope. Paul's already pointed that out. 
That interpretation doesn't seem to have a lot to do, though, with the broader point in this passage. The resurrection is real, except only to ask, you know, why have some died for the faith if there's no hope beyond this life? There are other views that stretch the meaning of the text and rely on a a conjecture that uh, all of the available manuscripts of the Greek have a copying error in them, and that that's not actually what Paul originally said. We have no reason to believe that. We've got manuscripts from all over the the ancient world, uh, from all sorts of copying traditions, and and none of them reflect anything other than what's said here. Uh, There's no reason to believe any such thing. Probably the best reading of verse 29 is that of John Calvin and many others, that people who were undergoing what we would now call membership courses, membership classes, they in the ancient times called them catechumens. And so there would be these catechumens, people going through a sort of a membership preparation class, uh, found themselves unexpectedly at the point of death because of a disease or an accident. And they would request their baptism before they died. And that would be fine because we see... Uh, many cases in the book of Acts where people are baptized as soon as they make a profession of faith, not not after they've had classes or anything like that. Uh, so, uh, but it may have been that people were working on membership classes, so to speak, in the church, and and as soon as they were able to say yes, I do indeed believe what you're teaching here, uh, they would be baptized. There might have been people who were not quite finished with that, and they wanted to be baptized before death which they saw impending when their baptism was a testimony to the reality of their faith before they died. This is something we actually know happened in the decades and centuries that followed. And if that's the case that Paul's speaking about that here, then Paul would be asking, why bother getting baptized on your deathbed if you don't believe there's resurrection? Your hope is only for this life. What are you worried about if you're dying now? What good does baptism do you? If there's no resurrection, you're still in your sins, and you're about to go to hell, why would you worry about getting baptized? As he said in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable, the most miserable. And yet some who have denied resurrection have done whatever this practice was. All, All of these different interpretations would mean that it is absolutely silly to be a resurrection denier and practice this. And yet some are doing that. So whatever the right interpretation of verse 29, it's clear that the behavior of the resurrection deniers was illogical and was inconsistent with what they were professing to believe. Another problem, he points out, is the apostles would be unnecessarily and therefore foolishly undergoing hardship. And these resurrection deniers are claiming to believe the apostolic faith. They're claiming to honor the the apostles. Verse 30 through the first part of 32. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember he said before that the only thing that he boasted in was the things that he was glad to give up his earthly comforts for the sake of the gospel. So he was really only boasting in Christ who strengthened him to do those things. So 
I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of man I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Think about it. The apostles have been proclaiming a risen Lord Jesus Christ. So as he said before, they'd be lying about God if that wasn't true. But as we noted before, it it seems that, that some have twisted the apostles' words and claimed that Jesus' resurrection was not a real bodily resurrection, but merely a spiritual resurrection. We've shown how that can't be what they were teaching. But some have twisted it and said, we do believe what the apostles teach. Paul's pointed out that it was a literal physical resurrection and that there are numerous witnesses to that fact. If it's not true, the gospel is not true. And Paul asks, why would I boast in what Christ has sustained me through if I didn't need to do it for the sake of the gospel? Why would I even bother to go to all of this trouble suffering in this life if my hope is only for this life? Why not just have fun now if there's no hope of a better world to come? Rather, he says, I die daily. He died to self. He gave up his own earthly desires and comforts and risked death regularly when he had no hope of anything better to come. He says he fought with beasts at Ephesus. There's no record of him having fought animals, literally, like in an arena or something. Most Bible scholars think he's using a figure of speech here, speaking of debating with opponents to the gospel at Ephesus and being in danger because as as he will have to shortly leave Ephesus because of a riot, people trying to get Paul killed because he's cut into their business. Uh, Idol makers are losing business because people aren't worshiping idols anymore, thanks to Paul's preaching of the gospel. Why Why go to all that trouble if resurrection isn't real? The resurrection deniers apparently claimed to believe the gospel the apostles had preached, while not realizing how foolish it would be for those same apostles to suffer for a message that brings no hope after this life. I'm going to make this life miserable for myself, and then I'm going to go to hell. If you know you're going to hell, at least have some fun now, I guess, is what Paul's saying. Uh, If there's no hope, After this life, if resurrection isn't real, the apostles are needlessly and foolishly undergoing hardship. And that segues really well into the next point. There would be no point to living righteously. If there's no resurrection, there would be no point to living righteously now. The second part of verse 32, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that's a quote from what we read earlier in the service, Isaiah 22, verse 13, in which the Lord has called for mourning and repentance for the people of Judah, lest he send his destruction upon them. But the people have chosen to ignore it, ignore the warning, to reject God's offer of mercy, and just enjoy life now, even though it was bringing destruction upon them. If, as Paul has established, there is no hope for redemption if Christ is not risen, then the wicked in Isaiah 22 were actually right. We can't lay up treasures in heaven uh, by our good works now in service to Christ. 
We have no hope of even going to heaven one way or the other. So why do anything, especially anything that's hard to do, even when you know it's good? We all might as well just follow our sinful desires. The desires of the flesh satisfy them. We're going to reap judgment either way in the hereafter. And yet the resurrection deniers weren't all libertines. They weren't saying, let's just live as we please now. They weren't antinomians who rejected God's moral law. Why did they bother to try to live righteously if there was nothing but condemnation to come whether they lived righteously or wickedly now? But they foolishly failed to recognize all the logical implications of their own teachings. If resurrection is not real, there is no point to living righteously. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And fourth, those therefore who teach against resurrection are not godly but an evil influence. Because taken to its logical conclusion, people are going to reject righteousness, and of course they're rejecting the gospel itself. Verse 33, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. Denial of resurrection logically leads to hopelessness in regard to salvation, which naturally leads to a rejection of good morality. The resurrection deniers were undermining the very gospel that they claimed to believe. And so they were an evil influence, and they needed to be disciplined, not they were not a good influence who needed to be tolerated or supported. Resurrection is an essential tenet of the Christian faith. Some who deny its reality may claim to be Christians, but they're not. Inevitably, their behavior will demonstrate a lack of understanding of what the gospel really is. They make the apostles look like fools for suffering for a gospel which offers no hope after this life. They make every Christian who's ever made any sacrifice for the service of Christ look like fools because there's no hope after this life. Just enjoy life now. They undermine righteousness. Why do the work of being righteous when you can just go along with the world's way of doing things and have a smooth and easy life. They logically drive people to reject godliness then and embrace worldliness. So a person in a church who rejects resurrection would need to be disciplined, not tolerated. So Christ's exhortation to you from this passage would be believe in the reality of resurrection. It is essential that you believe it. If you believe in him, you believe in a risen Lord. Believe that Christ is risen and will raise the dead at his coming. For the gospel rests on the truth of this doctrine. Well, may we pray. Lord, build up our faith. Help us to be humble enough to believe all that you have taught in your scriptures. And not just some of it. Not just the parts that we think are logical but even the parts that we find hard to imagine, hard to reconcile with what we see around us in the world. 
Help us rather to trust in you and to be like Abraham, who though he was well past the age of being able to have a child with his wife Sarah, believed that you would provide that child. And that belief was reckoned to him as righteousness. Let us trust every word that proceeds from your mouth, for we know it is good and true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.